Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Imagine sitting down to plan a vacation by the beach or in the mountains or some other lovely spot, searching for stuff to do on your phone, looking at hotel options, rentals, flights, all that stuff. Now step back a minute. Why do you do all that? Over the last three or four hundred years, we've learned that we need a vacation. We don't but we've learned to think that we do. That's Eric Zelo, a professor of European history at the University of New England, who argues the need to get away, that's a relatively recent invention. We've learned that we gain a great deal of social prestige and social status by where we are able to go. Perhaps more recently, we've learned that we can express who we are through tourism. We've come to believe that we can become better by traveling, that we can improve ourselves. This is a Pretty potent cocktail. In fact, Zinlo says, if you tried to tell someone 400 years ago that you were planning to spend a whole bunch of money to go somewhere else to sit in the sun, when presumably the sun is accessible where you live, they would have thought you were nuts on a couple of levels. Well, first of all, the idea of getting some sun in the 18th century when tourism has its real roots The idea of sitting in the sun was something that uh, marked you out as working class. So you would certainly not try to do that. You would try to be as pasty and white as you possibly could. But, yeah, the idea that that you would spend a lot of money on travel prior to the 18th century was something that just wouldn't really cross people's minds, at least not for leisure. Of course, people have been traveling as long as there have been people. They've looked for new food sources, they've traded, they've explored lands on behalf of queens and kings, they've gone to see important religious sites. But the notion that you would pay good money to visit the beach or the mountains? Ridiculous. According to Zelo, who's the author of the book A History of Modern Tourism, that desire is a newly created phenomenon. People had been terrified of the sea. The sea was the domain of Satan where sea monsters lived. The beach was this sort of transitional zone because the earth, the the physical uh, rock and so on that people lived on, that was the domain of of humans who were in the image of God. The sea was the domain of sea monsters and Satan. The beach was where the two sides, when they didn't want something, threw it. And you didn't want to go there. But in the 1700s, what people thought was beautiful started to change. Painters increasingly painted scenes of nature, and what had once been scary was reinvented as desirable. Not surprisingly, it was the rich who first started going on grand tours of Europe, and at first, the English government had to pay them because it was looking for people to be diplomats abroad and they needed folks to learn languages and understand other cultures. But like college kids on spring break, tourists can get out of hand. And those upstanding British kids, well, they often turned out to be a bit of a disaster. So, in essence, the idea of the Grand Tour is that young, mostly men, not entirely, but mostly men are going to the continent and having these experiences and improving themselves. And part of that meant that you had a tutor that went along with you who guided your education. Well, the tutors were often not very good. And so then we're talking about sort of 16, 17, 18-year-old men who are going to the continent, and they're expressly being told to spend lots of money. So they go to the continent and the way most of them spent their time was not learning languages or meeting the right people. It was drinking heavily, gambling, and seeing prostitutes. Hmm. Then they would come back to England and they hadn't learned any languages, but they wanted to show that they had had this experience. They would wave their arms around 
wildly expressing their points, speaking with these affected accents and refusing to eat the good roast beef of England, which just freaked out their parents like you wouldn't <laughs> believe. So there becomes this debate about whether or not it's a good idea for tourists to go abroad or for young, young people to go abroad or not. Tourists start to develop a kind of bad reputation. Travelers develop a better reputation. And that's sort of stuck. Hmm. At what point does traveling, does tourism stop being a thing for the really fancy people and start becoming a thing for a lot more people, like middle class people, start taking vacations? Yeah, so it's it's a gradual process. But the real kind of democratization process, and it takes time, uh, of tourism begins in the 19th century and I think arguably begins with the advent of steam. It's not just technology that drives the development of a more democratized mass tourism. You have to want to travel, so you have to learn that. And that happens through travel writing and guidebooks and art and, and mm. so on. So you have to have that. You have to have enough money to travel. Technology is going to widen the number of people who have enough money. And you have to have enough time. Right. And both middle and working class people start to take advantage of these things right away. For the working classes, it's in the form of excursions, which are short day trips to go to the beach or to go to the countryside or to see an execution. This was a big deal. Hmm. Um, go to see a boxing match. And excursions, which working class organizations had started developing earlier, also became a going concern and an organized thing by companies like Thomas Cook and Son and uh, Henry Gaze and others. So we talked about the rich kind of being at the vanguard of tourism, and then it expands out as technology improves and people have more disposable income. By World War II, tourism was a big thing. But you say, like, during the war, it basically, you know, for obvious reasons, sort of shut down. And then there was this kind of explosion afterwards. Why? Like, why was World War II in some ways the kickoff to what we might think of today as, like, modern tourism? Well, I, I, I would push things back a little bit. Okay. So the interwar years, I think, are huge. Hmm. And the reason is that there were three competing political ideologies, essentially, that define 20th century history. So you've got democracies, you've got communism, and you've got fascism. All of those saw tourism as a way of promoting their ideology and a way of really? promoting their agenda. And so they developed organizations and institutions in order to use tourism to communicate with the people, to draw the people together. The Nazis, for example, had a very developed leisure program. The idea was to create better Nazis by hmm. using particular tourist sites to promote Nazism. So they would take people to places that were poor outside of Germany so they could show what the Nazis were doing for the German economy. Or they would highlight racism. I mean, racism is central to their ideology. So they would use tourism as a means of kind of showing the superiority of Aryans in their minds. Hmm. The Soviets wanted to, to draw a distinct contrast between what they saw as bourgeois tourism and between the Soviet Union. So they developed something that was a little bit different, very rational, self-improving form of tourism that was often tied to health. So you'd get a doctor's note to tell you where you could go on holiday based on what particular needs you had. There was a lot of effort involved here. And so then the Second World War comes along. Again, we see more improvements in technology. Each time there's a war, there's a big leap forward in terms of particularly aviation, but technology more generally. After the war, uh, after World War II, there's a lot of concern again about ideology. 
Right. This time it's the communists. This time it's the Cold War. And there's a real concern that if there isn't a lot of attention paid to making sure that people are happy, making sure that people understand one another in Western Europe and in America, that another totalitarian regime might emerge. Hmm. It's the reason that when the Marshall Plan was put in place, in school, most of us learn that the Marshall Plan was about industry and about agriculture. But there was a third leg of the Marshall Plan that they took very seriously, and that was tourism development. And in fact, in Ireland, they threatened the Irish with withdrawing Marshall Plan money if they didn't develop their tourism first. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Eric Zelo, the author of A History of Modern Tourism. You know, one of the funny things to me reading the book was that uh, when Americans did start going to Europe post-war, you know, excited about tourism, Europeans pretty quickly realized they had some very fussy travelers on their hands. Why were Americans fussy? What did they want? Americans like comfort. And it became I mean, one of the first things of the European Travel Commission and national governments as well would send uh, representatives to the United States, particularly to go to hotels to see what the ho- American hotels were like. And then very quickly after that, motels. Americans liked to sleep with their windows open. They liked the hotel to be heated to a particular temperature. They liked to be able to sit in their room at a table next to the window when they had their breakfast. They liked particular pillows and particular beds. They liked their lighting to be in a particular way. All of these sorts of things. And so European hoteliers wanted to learn about this and wanted to implement those changes, those appearances in their hotels. So a lot of the hotels in France and so on wind up taking on a distinctly American appearance because Mm. that's what the American tourist wanted. Right. Um, One of the really notable things about the post-war period is that you see like the rise of the American car trip. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why that ever happened, why the car trip became for decades like the quintessential American vacation and how that car trip changed America. Because you throw millions of cars onto the highway, taking a trip, and it can change things. Yeah, I mean, it's not just America. It's, it really is an international concern. Hmm. So the first automobiles come along at the end of the 19th century. They're wicked expensive and terribly unreliable. So they're the playthings of the very, very uber-rich. But by 1916, the price had fallen to something like $325 or something like that, which meant that virtually everybody could afford to have one of these things. And right from the beginning, there was this notion of the automobile as promoting adventure. And early on, it really was. I mean, it really was. Because the car was more than likely going to break down. So these uber-wealthy people would typically bring a mechanic with them. On their vacation? It would just be like, you, your family, and the mechanic? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. But the vacation itself was about the adventure. It was about long-distance tests to see whether or not your car would make it. Okay. And whether or not you would. When the AAA was formed, a lot of uh, the kind of early stuff they did was developing maps so that people could go out and do these tests, in addition to lobbying for better roadways. And so that led particularly in the 1930s as, as part of the sort of Roosevelt uh, response to the Depression and trying to get people to work. That led to the development of state parks, development of campgrounds, and then, you know, of course, that creates a kind of leisure infrastructure that's profoundly new. Right, right. 
Um, even during this, you know, heyday of the American car trip, like 50s, 60s, 70s, um, you write about how uh, tourism is still really highly segregated. You know, you have places like the Catskills in New York where Jews are going because they're not really sure that they're going to be accepted other places. So they're kind of creating their own resort. Um, and then President Lyndon Johnson is so moved by the fact that African-Americans going on vacation, he hears these stories of like, there's nowhere to eat. Like they can't stop anywhere. Nobody will serve them. Uh, where can they go to the bathroom? Um, where can they stay at night? Like it, it's just like they're going on vacation too, but it's a nightmare. And part of those stories push him to say, yeah, we, we really got to change civil rights in this country. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and I mean, this is a story that's getting more and more attention now. I mean, one of the advantages of the, the film Green Book was that it drew attention to the fact that there were travel guides specifically for African-Americans to help them navigate the challenging landscape that was uh, segregated America. There were segregated beaches. There were segregated swimming pools. When African-Americans tried to swim in unsegregated places, people would pour acid into the pools to, to drive them out. I mean, it's, it's really a, a depressing story, but it, it speaks to kind of one of the central tensions of, of American history. Hmm. Okay, so let's pause here for a moment. And when we come back, American tourists start wanting uniqueness so much that it takes countries around the world down the path of installing fake old stuff. I'm talking with Eric Zinlo, who's a professor of history at the University of New England. He's the author of the book, A History of Modern Tourism. You can find this whole segment by heading to Apple Podcasts. It's also on our website, innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. When World War II ended, while Europe was struggling with poverty and devastation, the U.S. was doing pretty well financially. It had about half the wealth in the entire world, in just one country. So in 1948, when America launched the Marshall Plan to help Europe get back on its feet, it's probably not surprising that one of the lesser-known parts of that plan was to encourage Americans to visit the continent and spread some of their cash around. What happens in the post-war as a product of affluence, but a product of the kind of larger cultural zeitgeist, is consumerism leading people to express themselves in more and more niche ways. That's Eric Zillo, author of A History of Modern Tourism. And he argues that only a couple hundred years after vacations were invented, yeah, they're actually a pretty new idea, well, only a couple hundred years after that, we began using vacations to show how unique and special we were. And the places we visited, well, they had to be pretty special, too. I mean, the, the whole heritage business is about being quaint. The, the, you, and you know you've stepped into it. I, I live in Portland, Maine. And in Portland, if you go to the, the tourism center, the old port, you'll find cobblestones because cobblestones are a marker of quaintness. You'll find kind of vintage-looking lampposts. And these turn up all over the place. In Europe, Zillow says, to satisfy Americans' appetite for visiting special, quaint places, large programs started up to enforce that sort of lovely, 
but kind of artificial, quaintness. Uh, There were efforts to plant flowers, to clean up trash, to beautify things. In Ireland, there was a whole campaign uh, called the Tidy Towns Campaign, where they essentially took the poverty that was the reality of Irish life until quite recently, and they tried to erase it. So they had a campaign where they would paint buildings in towns. The the kind of pastel-painted, pretty Irish town uh, is a product of this campaign. They would plant flowers and flower boxes uh, in order to perpetuate this. They had uh, unannounced judges would come around in the countryside, and if your house was particularly neat and tidy, then you might be in for winning the prize. Wow. So they were kind of encouraging people to make sure that their their farms looked nice. Does that mean that, you know, as people go on vacation and see cobblestone streets and old lampposts and whatever, that they might just be seeing something that was put there for their consumption? To look old, it's not really old. Very often, yeah. Really? I mean, we expect it in Disney, uh, but it sounds like it's way, way bigger than people would normally imagine. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I, it, it, it's really, I mean, you mentioned Disneyfication. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Disney kind of encapsulates a lot of the sort of post-war consumerist reality, which is uh, has an interesting tension in it, in that we want things that are modern and new, and yet we have this profound nostalgia for the past. Mm-hmm. And those two things don't sit very easily right. together. And, and yet that's kind of who we are. Right. Disneyland, when it opened, has this main street that's a, a small-scale version of a traditional small American town. And right off from that is an area of the park that early on was devoted to what life would be like in, you know, I can't remember the year 2000 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this sort of future, futuristic landscape. Uh, it's, it's really quite striking, and it, it marks all elements of our lives. And I think a lot of that does, in fact, come through tourism. Hmm. Uh, the fact that if you go to Conway, New Hampshire, to the outlet mall, it looks like a little town, is no accident. And by the 1970s, that kind of identity culture, it, it developed, I think, some out of the 60s, the idea that you should question authority, that you should be free to express yourself. That is picked up within tourism, and we start getting more niche travel. The idea of spending time with your parents for a young person might not be quite as desirable, and the same was true for parents who would want to go out and say, you know, what I'm really into is is mountain climbing, mm-hmm. or what I'm really interested in is heritage, or what I'm really interested in is food-related tourism, culinary tourism, uh, whatever it happened to be. It really becomes quite a powerful consumable, and ultimately that's what tourism is. It's a consumable and a way of expressing oneself. Talk a little bit about what tourism looks like right now, because Something close to 10% of um, global GDP uh, has to do with tourism. Um, Something like one in 11 jobs in the world comes from tourism. I mean, that means it's one of the biggest industries of any industry that exists when you think about what people do and where people get their money. I think a lot of people think, like, that's my two weeks a year. But it's a lot more than just your two weeks a year. It's massive. 
Yeah. So in 2018, the UN World Tourism Organization recorded 1.4 billion international tourist arrivals. That represented a 6% growth on the year before. And over the last, say, 30 years, it's been growing at 5% plus per year, every year. Wow. The 1.4 billion number wasn't supposed to be reached, according to projections, for another two years. So this is really exploding. It's worth $1.7 trillion a year globally. In the Americas, $333 billion a year. That's huge. And it has implications for communities. It has implications for how we interact with other people. It's something that we don't necessarily talk about. We'll talk about petrochemicals or we'll talk about uh, global trade. Right. And yet tourism is this this just massive thing that, as you say, employs a huge number of people. And, and of course, we're all thinking about when our next vacation right. is and what it's going to be. How do you think that it changes how people view the world? I mean, you were talking about this massive surge in tourism, even bigger than people thought. Um, I wonder if part of that is that, like, a, a bunch of people are flowing into the middle and upper classes in China and that's just a huge market, and, and they now have the disposable income to visit Europe, to visit the States, you know, just go to go around and, and do things that 30, 40 years ago was not happening. But, like, how does it change things when we go from cultures that don't really see much outside ourselves to cultures that do, that really see parts of our country, parts of other countries? Yeah, the answer to that is massive, right? It has profound environmental impacts. One of the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases are the jets that we use to fly on when we go off on, on holiday. And that has implications for the very places we're going to see. In the book, I mention uh, the fact that skiing in the Alps, uh, a lot of the, the snowfields and, and glaciers that people are, are skiing on are melting as a result of greenhouse gases. And some of the places that we want to go to ski are going to be gone. So there's that environmental impact. My own uh, research has focused a lot on national identity, and tourism has a profound role in shaping how we see ourselves as nations, both because when we are traveling, we're comparing ourselves and what we know at right. home to the place that we're visiting, but also because the way that places self-present is premised on a notion of who they think they are and who they want others to think they are. Hmm. You don't go to France to experience Massachusetts. You go to experience France. So right. what does that mean? You, you don't go to Ireland because you think it's going to feel a lot like going to the Midwest. You go because it's going to be uniquely Irish. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And that's a whole, there's a whole process of figuring that out that speaks to our conversation about heritage earlier. Eric Zilo is a professor of European history at the University of New England. He is the author of A History of Modern Tourism. Eric, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And if you want to know more about how far we've come since the days when we avoided the sun, Vanity Fair has an article about a moment in the 1920s that suddenly made people want to get a tan. That's at innovationhub.org.